It's June 30th, 2019, and this is episode 403 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey folks, on today's show, we're kicking things off with a host discussion on the recently released Bitcoin Early paper. Then after the break, we continue our LTB Global Voices series, this time speaking with Christina and Leo out of Hong Kong. Want to support the show? Head over to iTunes or your favorite platform and leave a review. We appreciate it. Enjoy the show. Hey folks, I'm Adam B. Levine, and on today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hey. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> Thanks to the hosts and to you, the listener, for sitting in on today's session. I like the haze, guys. Today we'll be discussing one of the latest potential Bitcoin improvement proposals in a new paper by Gleb Namenko, Peter Wulla, Gregory Maxwell, Sasha Fedorova, and Ivan Beshatnik. Apologize if I mispronounced that last one. Describe an alternative transaction relay protocol, which they call Erlay. Quoting from the Bitcoin Optech newsletter, quote, Currently, when a node learns about a new transaction that passes its relay policy, it announces the transaction ID of that transaction to all its peers, except any peers that announced it previously. This is a very simple and effective policy, but it's not efficient. Most of the announcements a node receives are announcements for transaction that it's already learned about from a different peer a few moments before, a redundancy that wastes about 44% of all node bandwidth, according to the paper, end quote. Andreas, while there are a lot of things you can say that Bitcoin does really well, efficiency isn't really one of those characteristics. In this context, is efficiency good, bad, or something less binary? The main thing is the efficiency hasn't been as much as a consideration on bandwidth up to now. And optimization of the network bandwidth hasn't been a huge priority because other than the initial block download, keeping a node online doesn't consume enormous bandwidth. Then again, that's also a consideration that has influenced the scaling debate and how much we can increase the block size. So one of the ways to be able to make bandwidth usage more efficient, which may in the future allow us to even increase the base block size even further, is to not waste resources. Now, the current peer-to-peer -peer network protocol for propagating transactions and blocks is what's called flood propagation. And that is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It's a gossip protocol where you tell all of your neighbors about every transaction and block that you learn about. Now, if you think about it, the network is connected in such a way that a peer may hear about the same transaction from different neighbors because it arrives at different times in different parts of the network. So, you know, your node is hearing, oh, here's transaction B I just heard of. And then a few seconds later from another peer, oh, here's transaction A I just heard of. And then from another peer, oh, here's transaction A I just heard of. It's like, come on, guys, I already know about that one. And there's no way in the protocol to say, come on, I already know about that one. It is efficient in one way, and that is that it very efficiently makes sure that everybody in the network hears about blocks and transactions as quickly as possible. Right. It seems like it's very efficient from an anti-sensorability standpoint, right? Because everybody is talking about everything. Whereas if you had a more nuanced way to communicate this information, then you might potentially be able to disrupt the network by getting in the way of kind of key locations. That's correct. 
So then how does this solve that problem? How does it improve the efficiency without increasing the risks of those sorts of dangers? Well, to put it simply, it splits the propagation of transactions into two phases. In the first phase, a node tells eight of its peers, but no more. So it doesn't tell all of its neighbors. It only tells eight of its neighbors about all new transactions it has heard of. And then in the second phase, a node will produce a sketch, which is a compressed summary of all of the transactions it knows about. And it will send that sketch to all of its peers, which will then be able to construct their own sketch. And one feature of these sketches is that if you compare them by an exclusive or operation or merging of the two sets, it tells you what the differences are. So this way, peers can figure out without sending a whole list of transactions, what transactions they both have and what transactions one or the other of them is missing, and then only send the differences. Okay. So in the current scenario, I tell all of my neighbors, all of my neighbors know everything, but that's inefficient. In the new scenario, I tell eight of my neighbors, everybody else tells eight of their neighbors, that probably solves 99% of the problem. But in case it doesn't, there's also this new mechanism that allows me to summarize what it is that I know based around what everybody has told me, and then to transmit that summary to everyone instead of transmitting each individual transaction to everyone, which then makes it possible for us all to compare our lists and make sure that we have all of the right transactions. And to ask for the ones that we're missing. So if from the comparison, I know that you have three transactions that I haven't seen, I will then ask you for those specific transactions. And therefore, we don't need to do the whole flooding thing. Are there additional dangers that we're open to in terms of somebody providing wrong information, in terms of somebody trying to sneak a transaction in, or, or does this really not change that because underlying the protocol and the rules for what types of transactions will be accepted aren't changed at all by this? No, the, it, this doesn't change the consensus rules at all. And just because you tell someone about a transaction doesn't mean they propagate it. They still validate it first before propagating. So that doesn't change. You only propagate transactions you first validated with all of the rules of consensus. So you can't inject false transactions. There are some implications in terms of censorship as well as in terms of spying. So there's two considerations in the peer-to-peer -peer network. One is, how many nodes would you have to take over in order to prevent a transaction from propagating, right? And the other one is, how many nodes would you have to take over in order to be able to triangulate, essentially, where a transaction came from? So given the potential of an attacker to bootstrap lots of nodes and connect them broadly to the network, by timing, the differences in time when a specific transaction arrives at these, let's call them spy nodes in the network, an attacker can determine approximately the location, or if they're very lucky, accurately the location where the transaction was seen first, which can then relate it to some kind of IP address or IP address range or region. So that causes some privacy problems. The other obvious possibility is that if you have enough of these nodes in the network, you could do denial of service attacks or not propagate transactions, selectively censor transactions, which is a lot harder to do, especially with the flood propagation. So the antidote to the spying problem is a proposal called Dandelion. We've talked about this before. 
And what the Dandelion proposal does is instead of broadcasting the transaction immediately to all the owners from the point where the transaction was originated, it pushes it further into the network a certain number of hops during which it's not announced to anyone and it's transmitted in an encrypted format. And then when it arrives a certain number of hops far away, it then explodes into flood propagation, kind of like a dandelion seed that, you know, explodes and all of the seeds float away. So the good news about that is, obviously, you've got your spy nodes, you see the transaction originating from a spot, you triangulate it, that's not the spot where it actually came from. That's the spot where it propagated after the first X number of hops that were randomly selected. So what you're seeing is a false origination point. And that thwarts the spine. Now, the nice thing about Erlay is that it's dandelion compatible. So you can still do dandelion, and then a transaction will be propagated a certain number of hops without being flooded. And then when it gets to the point where you want to start flooding it, you then flood it using the Erlay protocol. So, you know, sketches and differences and selective propagation. Right. So instead of actually flooding it to the entire network, it goes to the eight and then you get the sketches and the reconciliation. But the origin point, at least the one that's visible on the network, winds up being something that's entirely unrelated, which is basically the status quo of what we have now. You know, if you go to blockchain.info or something and you look up a transaction, you'll see a lot of times it's like South Africa is where that transaction came from when actually it's a transaction that you made, you know, in New York. That's why that happens. And this dandelion protocol basically would allow that to continue. That's correct. Dandelion is a more sophisticated way of obfuscating that IP address, even when you have potentially a large number of spy nodes on the network, which of course we do have now because of for-profit, privacy-violating surveillance capitalism companies that have stuck their leechy little vampire fingers into the network and are selling off the privacy of everybody involved. So Dandelion is one of the antidotes to that, and Erlay can reduce the bandwidth consumption and optimize network use without disrupting that privacy technology. And it doesn't really affect the ability to deny service or censor transactions. It does slow down propagation a tiny bit. So if you're not wasting bandwidth by doing this floods where you tell everyone about everything, transactions take a bit longer to propagate across the entire planet than they would otherwise. But it's not a very big difference. One of the things that strikes me about this is it seems like it makes assumptions about network behavior more complex than they are right now. As it stands right now, there's a very simple protocol, and that's how people behave. But if you had this type of, whether you're talking about dandelion or earlier or a combination of the two, Yeah, it breaks those assumptions. Things are more complex, and that makes it difficult to do the kind of analysis that surveillance companies are doing. Now, it's not as good as using onion routing or something like that, but it's an improvement. Right. But just like onion routing, the fact that it exists and that it's being used by people out there means that even people who aren't using it wind up getting the advantage because they might be using it, right? There's a you you can't tell from the outside looking in. So even for people who aren't necessarily adopting it, this still winds up having a net positive effect for them in terms of privacy and assumptions. Yes, although honestly, this will be adopted most likely in Bitcoin Core and most other implementations of the Node software. And therefore, it's a standard feature. It's not like you have to request to have it turned on. If your wallet is using your own Node and your Node is upgraded 
you'll probably get this capability as soon as it's available on mainnet. If your wallet is a lightweight client, then whatever node it injects to, if that node has been upgraded, you'll get that capability as well. So everybody gets it, really. It runs by default. It will run by default, I should say. So somewhat basic question, but we've recently been talking about TapScript and Schnorr signatures and things like that, things that affect sort of the transaction side of the protocol. It seems like that has a much harder path towards adoption than something like what we're talking about here. It seems like this is something that really just has to go into the core software and then it sort of trickles down. Or do you see kind of a rollout that might take multiple years before we really see this pervasively out there, assuming it gets done? Oh, no, this will happen much faster. Um, Changes to the P2P protocol happen much faster. Most people don't even know unless they're paying attention to the maintenance releases of the software the change log and what's being changed when they upgrade from different versions. But there've been continuous changes to the P2P network and enhancements, capabilities, the way things are negotiated, the way the network resists denial of service attacks. All of those capabilities have changed often. Anything that doesn't touch consensus can actually move at the speed of normal software development. And this doesn't touch consensus at all. It's just a software upgrade, and it will be rolled in pretty quickly. So as far as path towards adoption for something like this, it sounds like once it's in BIP format, should be pretty easy to you know make it happen relative to some of those more complex changes that you were just describing. What's your expected path forward for it at this point? It will still take some time to bring this in. Keep in mind that managing the Bitcoin Core software and network node software involves tracking multiple versions. We're currently at 17, but there's still people running 16 and 15, and those haven't been deprecated yet. So when changes are made, they have to be backported to previous ones. You have to do regression testing to make sure that new features don't break old features or introduce bugs in other parts of the software and still work in previous versions of the software, etc. And then it has to be rolled in as part of first a pre-release or release candidate, do a lot of testing, and then a beta, and finally into the mainstream or main version of the software. And these releases happen, I believe Core is now doing six-month releases, so major version every six months. It will still take a while to bring it into mainnet because of a lot of testing that has to happen. You can imagine that if there's a bug in the network software that causes, let's say, the software to crash, that could have a very bad effect across the network, even though it's not in consensus rules. So it's not as straightforward as I might have made it seem in my previous statement, but it will be relatively fast. So we picked this up from the Bitcoin Optech newsletter. If someone would like to learn more about this type of technology or perhaps get involved with the conversation, are there any platforms right now that you can recommend, Andreas? Well, this stuff is being discussed on two platforms, really. One is the Bitcoin developers mailing list, and the other one is the Bitcoin developers IRC channel. Little aside, which I found interesting, the technology used for doing these sketches, which is a library called Minisketch, is actually based on BCH codes, Bose, Chaduri, Hockengem codes. Okay, so not Bitcoin Cash, as (laughs) as Stephanie and I both thought. (laughs) No. So BCH codes are actually the basis for the name of Betch32 addresses. BCH codes, which are essentially cyclic redundancy check codes or error checking codes, in order to determine 
let's say in the case of SegWit native addresses or Bash32 addresses, the difference between what you typed and what the address should have been, right? So one of the interesting things about SegWit native addresses is when if you type one of the characters wrong, it not only tells you that's a wrong address, but it says it was probably the fifth character, <laughs> which is a really cute feature. And it's based on this ability of BCH codes to not only do error detection, but also error detection to tell you approximately what is the difference between what you gave and what is expected. And you can maybe in that sentence see how that could relate to tracking the difference between which transactions you have versus which transaction I have used in Minisketch. So the same technology, both Chowdhury Hockenheim codes or BCH codes, now being used in two different places in Bitcoin and very much the same developers, Peter Wall, Greg Maxwell, and Gleik Nomenko were involved in building the Minisketch library. So there's some great overlap of these things here. As they also mentioned on the Optech newsletter, which does really good research and really interesting tech analysis, these mini sketches also have other applications. We're likely to see them again in other places. One of the places they might pop up is Lightning Network. So in Lightning, nodes have to communicate route updates to each other about the status of payment channels. This is a very, very similar problem to communicating transactions. You want to make sure that updates about what channels have been created are communicated as quickly as possible across the entire network, but you don't want to repeat the same information again and again and again. So in exactly the same way, that library could be used to optimize the bandwidth use of Lightning nodes communicating with each other about the network state. You mentioned that although this is inefficient, it hasn't mattered. Does it matter now, or is this purely about future-proofing? It matters and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in terms of degrading the network, but it has already had an impact in terms of decentralization. Bandwidth use is one of the important considerations for someone deciding whether to run a node or not. And so for people who do not have access to adequate bandwidth, running a node becomes economically infeasible because of the cost of bandwidth. So it's already had an impact. And the secondary impact of that, of course, is if people are already not running nodes with the current size of blocks, what happens if you increase the block size? Fewer people run nodes. And that was a key consideration in the scaling debate was not, do we have enough disk space? It was not, do we have enough CPU? It was bandwidth. That was a key consideration. So it has had an impact already. Finally, there's a great optimization approach to start addressing this problem more effectively. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here again with Paul from Edge for another quick sponsored minute. So Paul, I used to think of Edge as a wallet, but it seems like there's a lot more going on here. You're right, Adam. So Edge is a wallet built on the Edge SDK, which is an open source SDK for apps to be able to secure private keys for the user, much like they do in Edge with a simple username and password to encrypt and backup keys. But it also lets the app transact on multiple different cryptocurrency blockchains, such as Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ether, you know, tokens, EOS, Stellar, and whatnot. And it's actually being used by a handful of great partners, such as Augur, the decentralized prediction market on Ethereum, Endorse, the professional network, um, Ember Fund, which is an awesome decentralized hedge fund, and even the top four Bitcoin ATM operators in the US. To learn more, visit edge.app. Thanks, Paul. Uh, thanks a whole bunch, Adam.
Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here again with Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation for another interview showcasing perspectives and voices beyond the borders of our everyday experiences. For today's conversation, we're joined by Leo and Christina from the Bitcoin Association of Hong Kong. Christina, Leo, thank you very much for taking the time today. Hi, Adam. Hi, Adam. What is your background? When did you actually become involved or get interested in cryptocurrency? I was a student of economics in Austria, and I moved to Hong Kong to do a master's in statistics. And in that time, I heard about Bitcoin for the first time. I was very excited about the ideas. I didn't really understand it. I had trouble finding others who to talk to. I very much had trouble using it or even setting up a wallet or buying my first Bitcoin. During 2012 in Hong Kong, I did meet some people who at least had heard of it. And in summer that time, a friend of mine set up a Bitcoin meetup. And I very quickly started to organize Bitcoin meetups myself, even though the goal was very much to find others to learn from. It quickly became just a forum for people to ask each other's question, research them at home and regather a few weeks later with at least some answers. And it's grown from there. Thank you, Leo. Christina? Yeah. I actually have a background in software development. I took a break from that. And actually in 2008, 2009, I went to Zimbabwe and I witnessed the hyperinflation crisis there where people were running around with money that basically was worthless. So that was my first awareness about the fragility of government-issued currencies. And then in about 2011, I heard about Bitcoin or a couple of my friends. And I said, whoa, this is really cool. I mean, people could use this as an exit pretty much to protect themselves in cases where they're experiencing government collapse or something like that. But I didn't seriously get into it until about 2015 when I was going back and forth between Hong Kong and the US for some other business. And I had a bank account shut down for no good reason other than HSBC decided, well, you know, we're cleaning house and you're not really using this account that much. And that was the wake up call. That's when I really started to get into Bitcoin. So you kind of witnessed and experienced hyperinflation firsthand before cryptocurrency even really existed. And at that point, did you have much awareness of how money worked or was that sort of a catalyst to make you learn how money worked? I think that was a tremendous catalyst because it coincided with a 2008 financial crisis and Having experienced it firsthand just made me want to dig into it deeper and ask, how is this possible? How does this destroy people's livelihoods? Because you can see people on the street who had good educational backgrounds. There were doctors that suddenly didn't have jobs, and they had to immigrate out of their country to find work just to make day-to-day -day living. We want to learn a little bit about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency adoption over the last few years in Hong Kong. But especially in mainland China, it's such an interesting contradiction where you have people living in the world's largest police state under very repressive rules where there's like micro surveillance over your messaging down to the level of like, you can't even send messages with certain words in it or the WeChat machine eats it up. But at the same time, people are like moving money from inside mainland China to Hong Kong and elsewhere over this global neutral payment rail. And it's such a fascinating phenomenon. So I'd love to hear you both talk about the growth of Bitcoin in this area and what kind of effect it's having on people and society. I think Hong Kongers got the hang of Bitcoin as an idea relatively quickly, 
Of course, they might disagree over whether that's useful or have their own doubts about whether it works. But the idea of trading a foreign currency or trading something like that, a stock or investing in it, or the scarcity of it, I think people were quite quickly accustomed to those concepts. Very different to my friends in, for example, Europe, where young people aren't really used to the concept of foreign currencies. They ask questions like, who sets the price of Bitcoin? Isn't the scarcity harmful? And I think in Hong Kong, people got that quite quickly. And they also got very quickly that banks aren't exactly there to serve you. They aren't utilities like water or your mobile phone that you simply sign up and then consume the services. But they have their own will and their own mind, and they might trade against you. They might hold positions against your interests, and they might kick you out any second because you're no longer a profitable customer. And even though I think Bitcoin is still not at the point where it's really useful for a large portion of the population, it's still a lot easier to lie to your bank about the nature of your business rather than to figure out how to run your business with Bitcoin. But there's certainly a lot of people who are willing to make the bet that, yeah, the banks might not survive this threat or might not survive the next financial crisis. And then Bitcoin could be a very attractive alternative. And being in a place where people have always had to be a little bit more creative with making money, with running their businesses, dealing with the instability of their neighbors, dealing with bank runs or currency crisis, or simply being the safe harbor for people who do, I think this is a great place for. Bitcoin right now and will be an even better place for Bitcoin in the future. But it's not without its share of contradictions. Hong Kong is full of contradictions. And even though some of them might be easy to look through after a bit of study, others are not. And these contradictions might not always appear as contradictions for Hong Kong businesses or for Hong Kong entrepreneurs. They very much appear as contradictions for outsiders. And especially when we talk about regulation or when we talk about adoption or when we talk about the way people do business here, it's sometimes very easy to think of how Bitcoin does fit in, even though it might not appear to be used as much. Yeah. I've had family in Hong Kong for a long time, extended family. And over the last 70 years, I've always felt that there's a bit of anxiety in Hong Kong. Because post-communist revolution, a lot of Chinese who wanted to do business all ran. You know, everyone exited. And there are only a couple places to really exit where there was a very free economy. And Hong Kong was pretty much at the top of the list next to Singapore. So there was a timeline, a deadline effectively. 1997 is the year when the British gave back Hong Kong. But they extended it for 50 years. So now we have this 50-year transition period before Hong Kong is supposedly completely absorbed by mainland China. So that being said, you know, before 97, there was a lot of anxiety and people want to make money and get out or find an exit in some way. And now, you know, there's a bit of that as well. You know, Hong Kong's a culture of fast money. It's got the highest level of economic freedom pretty much in the world. There are very few regulatory restrictions. If you want to come and do business, you can do it very quickly. 
And so those are things that attract people who want to run business, do business quickly in Hong Kong. But at the same time, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because you have China right next door. You don't know when China's going to come in and put their foot down. That's the fear. And then there's a time issue. So people in Hong Kong never really want to invest longer than 18 months in any project or company. Unlike in other places, they're willing to put a longer-term investment, maybe two, three, four, five years. So because of that, there's a lot of impatience built into Hong Kong. There's also a lot of speculation, and that comes with the territory. If you go back to the 1980s and 1990s, Hong Kong had more industries. They had a very big textile manufacturing industry, and they also had a big import-export industry because it's a free port. There's no restriction on capital movement interrupt Hong Kong. That is pretty much the agreement that was made by the British. But that being said, those industries also shrank during that entire period of time because throughout the 90s, the textile industry shrank. They went to mainland China because the labor was a lot cheaper there. And then mainland China also started opening up their own free economic trading zones. And that would compete against Hong Kong to a certain degree. So over the last 30 or so years, Hong Kong's diversity in its economy sort of shrank down to three things, which I say the big three, and that's real estate, retail, and finance. And finance being one of the big sectors where there's a lot of speculation, a lot of volatility historically in their markets, attracts a lot of traders. When we look at Bitcoin, that's one of the things that people speculate on, and that's how people start to adopt Bitcoin fairly quickly in Hong Kong as opposed to other areas in the world. So Hong Kong is probably one of the most high-tech spaces where we've actually been talking to people. And you know, you mentioned speculation a couple of times already in this interview. How are people using cryptocurrency and kind of what is the excitement around it? Is it mostly speculation at this point? My experience personally between 2016 through 18 was that that's what people are after. There's expats even from Europe and the US who come to Hong Kong for the purpose of leveraging the low taxation policies to make a lot of money and get in, get out. And that's the same thing with people in Hong Kong, because there's this constant anxiety about, you know, what's the government going to do next? So I see a lot of that. But speculation is just an entry, because once you get people to, you know, think about it, to use it, to ask, you know, how does it work? That's the first foot in the door, because then they'll try different things. And I think it's actually good for Bitcoin and crypto. Once you whet someone's appetite, then they start to ask, well, how else could this be used? One case in particular I remember was CryptoKitties, for example. CryptoKitties, actually, the developers never targeted China. They were originally targeting North America and a lot of Ethereum developers. But it picked up like wildfire in China immediately after it launched because people there saw it as effectively like buying lottery tickets. It was fun. And they would learn how to use Ethereum. There are quite a number of people in Hong Kong who had never experienced how to use Ethereum or do a transaction. But I spent time teaching them, like, here's how you actually do it. You know, there's that bit of extra learning that goes along with beyond just speculation. There's now an understanding of how something in crypto works. So you've both kind of described Hong Kong as a land that's really focused on finance, but kind of in the backdrop has this historical and present threat of increasing restrictions in different areas. I wanted to ask a question about something that happened today, 
where, from what we understand, the company Tencent wants to prohibit people from using or doing cryptocurrency transactions on its really, really popular communications platform, WeChat, which obviously more than a billion people use. And in response, I thought it was really interesting that CZ from Binance basically commented on this and called it short-term pain, long-term gain. And he said that this is sort of precisely the type of restriction of freedom that will push people to use crypto. And he said that it would be hard to beat WeChat pay if they're relatively open because the UX is really good and it's very convenient. But if there are more and more of these kinds of restrictions on it, then people may go other directions. I wanted to get your feedback on that. Oh, absolutely. Certainly, the reason why WeChat and Alipay got big in the first place is because they had very few restrictions. It was very easy to open an account. In the beginning, all you needed was a phone number. It was far easier to onboard people and to make small transactions to anybody than what we are used to in the US or Europe. And that certainly allowed them to grow very quickly and surpass banks to the point where people no longer really use their bank accounts if they have one. But WeChat has never really been very big in Bitcoin trading. The volumes on WeChat might be very high in total, but it's very small payments. People more use it to pay for their metro ticket or to buy something at a vending machine or to send each other small gifts. But Alipay is still much more common for larger payments. That's also common for real commercial payments, people paying their suppliers with Alipay. And I believe most of the volume in the Bitcoin OTC market is still through Alipay. Some of it is still in bank wires. But as they're becoming more restrictive, I think Bitcoin will have a very hard time in China because everything is so tightly controlled and it's so incredibly difficult to get around the government restrictions. This is a population that is unable to trust their own phone, that's unable to trust their own operating system. Their internet service providers are openly complicit in enforcing censorship. And if Bitcoin becomes large enough and gets on the radar of the government and of these organizations, then it will be very hard to use Bitcoin in China, even given satellites, even given radio receivers. It will always require users to jump the great firewall first. And that's also becoming more and more difficult. Right. And to that end, I'm going to add that Hong Kong does not have censored internet. <laughs> yeah. So Hong Kong's relationship with Bitcoin has always been very closely tied to that of China. Going back to your question earlier, I think the story of Bitcoin in Hong Kong starts around the same time as the story of Bitcoin in China. It got really big in the beginning of 2013, throughout 2013. And as Chinese buyers fueled that bubble, there was a large arbitrage opportunity. And people in Hong Kong very quickly realized that because of their access to international markets, they can buy Bitcoin much cheaper than their so-called compatriots in China, and they would be able to sell them there for a profit. And so people in the summer of 2013 would go forth and back with bags full of cash to buy Bitcoin in Hong Kong send these Bitcoin to Chinese platforms, sell them there, withdraw them to their own bank account or withdraw them to their Alipay account, cash them out to renminbi, take the renminbi back across the border, exchange the renminbi to Hong Kong dollars. For many people, that was very profitable and a very exciting lesson on how Bitcoin works. And a lot of these people never stopped doing that. Just to get a little more granular for just one second, I was interviewing someone the other day who spends a lot of time in China, and she was basically telling me that it would be super easy for me to send her 
Bitcoin, like completely non KYC on, let's say, a bread wallet or something like that. And she could, with the help of WeChat groups that she's part of, quickly turn that into Renimbi into her bank account, that that would be like super easy for her. So you speak of like a day, Leo, maybe soon where the Chinese government would actually enforce and start banning and cracking down. But until that day comes, it does seem like obviously this is something that a ton of people in China are using to move their money out of the country and kind of escape the existing system. I think a lot of the businesses that have sprung up in Hong Kong around Bitcoin trading have arisen out of this issue where mainland China is trying to clamp down on Bitcoin trading. Yeah, there is a big gray market. I won't say anything specific, but you know, everyone knows there's a gray market in China. Whenever something goes underground, people want it more. And in my opinion, Hong Kong has always been the release valve for that, where you know, if they want to go gray and they want to do transactions, they just do it with somebody across the border in Hong Kong. I'd say it would be relatively easy for them to be more aggressive in blocking those things in a similar way as they've become more aggressive in blocking websites. But it does have a lot of collateral damage. And I feel like they fear this collateral damage in the financial markets a lot more than they feel it in the information markets on the internet. If they were to crack down on people trading cryptocurrencies on WeChat or Alipay, I believe they would be successful. But they would also make these platforms a lot less attractive and they would move a lot of commerce back into cash or prevent a lot of commerce because it's very difficult for Alipay to very reliably determine a Bitcoin transaction. That's such a fascinating observation. So essentially, the Chinese government could censor the Internet and people would kind of be like, eh, it sucks, but it's not bad enough for me to leave the country. But if they start censoring this new form of money and Bitcoin and new cryptocurrencies, I mean, miners and developers, I mean, they might have to leave the country. They might go to Korea or Japan or Taiwan. And you're saying that that might be something the Chinese government is not excited about. They're pushing them into controlled environments. So away from the open, free discussion on the internet towards controlled discussions on WeChat. But I think it's a lot easier for them to censor a political conversation on WeChat than it is for them to censor the WeChat transaction. Because it's a lot more difficult for them to find out what did you actually buy with WeChat or what was exchanged for this Alipay payment when the note could read anything and is not going to read invoice for Bitcoin. But also because they feel like they need commerce to flow very smoothly. Drugs are heavily criminalized in China, and it's surprisingly easy still to buy them on WeChat or to advertise for them. For the party to legitimize itself through economic growth is a much bigger deal for the population than for them to legitimize themselves through freedom or open discussions. I would totally agree with that. We've been talking predominantly about Bitcoin. Is Bitcoin the primary area of interest relative to other cryptocurrencies? How do you assess the situation? I would assess that it's split among more assets. For example, EOS is very heavily promoted in mainland China. I don't know where that's going to go. There's a whole bunch of other currencies. Like Ethereum was pretty big in Hong Kong for a while. And I certainly think that people are open to new ideas. I think that's the most important thing is that people in China seem to be open to adopting technology like this much more aggressively than in the United States. That's just my opinion from what I've seen. I could be totally wrong. 
but between 2015 and 2017, I watched Shenzhen just go completely from a cash-based transaction on a retail floor of Huaqiangpei, which is one of the largest electronics distribution markets, to completely digital. There was just no cash anymore. And in the space of two years, it just completely migrated. So rapid adoption of tech or just utility of any sort of cryptocurrency, I would speculate that it would be very quick in China in the next three years of any type. I'd even go a step further and say the interest is very much away from Bitcoin. People look at this as an investment. They are interested in parking their money somewhere. It looks like in China, all assets, all investment options, which are not that many to begin with, are already exhausted and already overhyped. And so people very much look for investments that are liquid, investments that are overseas, investments that aren't so much susceptible to politics and economy in China. Cryptocurrencies are kind of perfect for that. But Bitcoin itself does not have an appealing investment thesis. People are much more comfortable with giving their money into the hands of strangers who promise to build companies and who promise to maybe build the next Bitcoin or smart contract platforms. Bitcoin is just what's being used for this. Bitcoin is just the currency in this investment economy. Ethereum and EOS are the investments, but the way to get to those investments is Bitcoin. That's the way you move your money around. And so I think Bitcoin very much succeeded in this world already to establish itself as money, but serves more an investment community that is interested in something else. What's really fascinating in Hong Kong to me is that it has a very high concentration of Bitcoin activity. It has a very easy to understand legal framework around Bitcoin. It's very unlikely to have any changes in that. It's very unlikely to have the government make a step forward and embrace cryptocurrencies. But it's also very unlikely to have them regulate on it or quickly introduce new licensing regimes. It's mostly the banks that are hostile to the industry. But the industry has learned to not rely on Hong Kong banks or not rely on banks at all. And I think this stability and this predictability that Hong Kong provides is going to make it increasingly attractive in terms of instability. So if we now have the New York authorities moving very much against Bitcoin exchanges, or if we had European authorities introducing very strict licensing regimes, or if we had more drama in China or Southeast Asia, then a lot more activity is going to concentrate here. For example, if Bitcoin doesn't get the attention of these authorities as much, and if the bear market continues and Bitcoin sort of continues to be forgotten by the establishment, then companies are going to spread out again more. I like how Hong Kong is very lazy fair about regulating Bitcoin. I mean, I think the biggest message I saw from the Hong Kong government was, be careful of ICOs, you know, you don't know if it's a scam. Just take care and do your own research. We're not going to tell you, no, these are a band. You know, I think it's quite refreshing in an age where uh, there's a lot of countries where they just come in and outright ban ICOs or ban the use of cryptocurrencies. There is a flip side to that because there are a lot of scams and it's that concern that people have. But that's a free market. The epitome of a free market is what Hong Kong is. And until that changes, this is probably one of the best places to do cryptocurrency business as a whole. 
In fact, in 2017-18, I've seen a lot of companies from Silicon Valley come to Hong Kong just to court venture capital dollars. Never seen so much activity, but that's also because they had so much trouble raising money elsewhere, and there aren't those restrictions in Hong Kong. So I can imagine a really good future for Hong Kong in the fintech area, but there is one weakness, and I think the big weakness is Hong Kong doesn't have a really strong tech sector. So going out three to four years, the big question is where they can get the technical people to help them develop the fintech sector, and that might be the development in the Greater Bay Area in Hong Kong. In that they may end up pulling tech talent from mainland. We don't know. That's something to consider in the future of how they're going to develop that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Andreas, Stephanie, Jonathan, Alex, Christina, Leo, and Adam. Music for today's show was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Stephen and Adam. Any questions or comments? Email Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. See you next time.